electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, New York Times columnist Tom Friedman, two weeks into Russia's war in Ukraine. The danger here is that there's only one thing more dangerous than a strong Putin's Russia, and that's a weak Putin's Russia that starts to fracture inside. How China's power now hangs in the balance. If China is your only friend, you have no friends. Because China has no friends, it has vassals and customers. Plus, governments have sent a slew of economic shots at Russia, and now over 300 Western companies are joining in. Today we break down the symbolic departure of Western influence, CNBC's own Diana Olick, who studied in Russia just before the Berlin Wall fell. So they opened up this strange McDonald's pop-up. The lines were just endless, because I'll tell you this, Russians were insatiable for anything American. And CNBC's Steve Leisman, who led the Wall Street Journal's reporting in Moscow in the early 90s. If you could buy a Big Mac in Moscow, well, you could almost do anything. Anything was possible. It's Wednesday, March 9th, 2022, and this special episode of Squawk Pod begins right now. We are now 14 days into Russia's war with Ukraine. According to Reuters, more than 13,000 people have died and more than 2 million displaced. The Western world has imposed a slew of economic sanctions in response, freezing the assets of the Russian central bank, removing most Russian banks from the international financial messaging system, targeting high net worth Russians, oligarchs. And now the U.S. has banned imports of Russian oil and gas. The sanctions are severe, so severe, the Kremlin has said they amount to waging a de facto economic war. But it isn't just Western governments taking action, it's Western companies. Brands that were once highly sought after in Russia, from the consumer facing like Adidas and Canada Goose, Levi Strauss and Kraft Heinz, to financial services and tech and entertainment companies like JP Morgan, PayPal, Disney, Amazon, and over 300 others. Our Squawk Box anchors Becky Quick and Joe Kernan digested the entire list this morning. Four iconic American companies are pulling out of Russia after facing increasing pressure from consumers, politicians and rivals. PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, McDonald's and Starbucks are all halting their businesses there. Pepsi is going to be suspending capital investments, advertisements and sales of its soft drink brands, but it will continue selling essential items like baby formula, milk and baby food. McDonald's will temporarily close all 850 of its Russian restaurants. Starbucks said it's suspending all business activity in Russia and this is a big deal. These are some of the holdouts because it's, it's, it means more to the company's bottom lines than some of the other companies that had boycotted earlier. For Pepsi, it's 4% of its business in Russia. Coca-Cola, Ukraine and Russia make up about 1% to 2%. There's 850 McDonald's restaurants in Russia, and most of them are company-owned. 84% are company-owned rather than franchisees. So you had other companies where it's franchisees. They're not taking as big of a hit. Um, these were some of the holdouts on this. Yeah. Um, the... the- Expression drag kicking and screaming comes to mind. I mean, our, our friend Jeff Sonnenfeld had to like rat out all these guys. You saw his, his stuff on which companies were and, and weren't. 
and I don't like the expression that the United States will finally do the right thing after it's exhausted everything else, but they Mr. finally, Churchill. right? But it, that, I was also reminded of that, that they'll do the right thing. But then of I- Of course, it's, it's been 14 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. Yeah. Then I think, the, you know, the Russian people, I don't know whether they signed on for all this. They got this, you know, autocrat. So now they can't, you know. Kleptocrat. Kleptocrat, yeah, he's not even on Now they can't, you know, so they can buy a Big Mac now. That seems harsh. Yeah, it, it, it or, and like no Pepsi or Coke. Yes. What does that leave? Yes, I'm sure there RC are other Cola. brands. You still make that? Yeah, there are. I'm not. I was, Russian brands. Ugh. Look, we, we've got with vodka. Tom Friedman on today. Yeah, we will. He's the one who 20 years ago said that no two com- countries who have McDonald's have ever attacked each other or gone to war. Um, that it's capitalism brought by, you know, the, the golden arches and other places, that that has never happened. Joining us right now is Tom Friedman, New York Times foreign affairs columnist. In his latest column today, he says Putin has no good way out, and that really scares me. Um, Tom, add the rest of us to that list. If, if Putin can't find a way out that lets him save any face, what do you think happens next? Well, Becky, uh, you, you think if he can't, he's going to double down. That's my fear. Um, and he'll keep doubling down um, uh, until my fear is, um, you know, he reaches for something really crazy. Um like a tactical nuclear weapon. I'm not predicting that, but that is the danger. Becky, I said Putin can't win because um, his going in strategy um, was completely uh, fanciful. Uh, He believed two basic things. Uh, One is that Ukraine uh, was a country dominated by some tiny, you know, quote unquote, Nazi elite. And that if he just decapitated that elite, Ukraine would, uh, with open arms, rush back into the bosom of Mother Russia. Um, uh, he, he was wrong on so many things, it would take me the rest of the show uh, to articulate them. But he, w- he, he was wrong that Ukrainians wanted to rush into uh, the arms of Mother Russia. He was wrong that they wouldn't fight and die for their country. Uh, he was wrong about his own army. He was wrong about the ability of the Biden administration to galvanize the biggest and best global coalition since George H.W. Bush. Uh, uh, in 1991 against Saddam Hussein. When you're that wrong about so many things, um, you're going to lose. The only question is, will you lose early and small or late and big? And unless there is some kind of negotiation here real soon, uh, I fear he's going to lose late and big. And the, the danger here is that there's only one thing more dangerous than a strong Putin's Russia, and that's a weak Putin's Russia that um, uh, starts to fracture inside. So uh, it's still a very unstable and dangerous situation. You point out that uh, Russia has a long history of not looking kindly on leaders that go into these incursions, start wars, and then lose. Yeah, I mean, um, just go back to um, you know Brezhnev after the loss in Afghanistan, the Brezhnev administration, Gorbachev at the end of the, after the loss of the Cold War, um, Nikita Khrushchev after the um, Cuban Missile Crisis, and it, it goes all the way back to uh, Tsar Nicholas I and the, and, and the Crimea War in the 1850s. So um, Putin knows that. Um, uh, he, he's not in a system that allows you to retire um, peacefully with your stolen billions to a you know, uh, in Sochi. So um, he could be a very desperate, cornered, humiliated animal here. Um, very, very soon. And I, I, I'm just concerned about that. It's not that I want to lift my foot off the gap, the pressure on him, but uh, he can be very dangerous. Tom, one of the things we've been talking about is Russia being able to count, to this point at least, on China and, and President Xi. 
Um, that was one of the things that he may have calculated correctly. But how much pressure does China have here? We talked to Yunus Yun, our, our correspondent from Beijing earlier, and she said, look, um, China wants to come down on the side of the winner and is maybe kind of walking both sides at this point. It looks as though they're still tap dancing around the whole issue and still not wanting to call um, the Russian attack an invasion, uh, still uh, very much wanting to at least appear neutral. I think at the end of the day, China doesn't really know who's going to win and wants to make sure that it's on the side of the winner. What do you anticipate China would do? And what would it mean if China were to pull its support away from Putin? Well, I wrote about this earlier in the week, Becky, and I saw Eunice's report, which I thought was excellent. I mean, I begin with the fact that um, from Putin's point of view, if China is your only friend, you have no friends because China has no friends. It has vassals and customers. Um, and so uh, in the short term, if Putin is depending on China, the first thing they're going to do is squeeze him uh, for better prices on oil and gas. Uh, in the long term, though, you know, China is clearly um, flummoxed, I would say. They want to be connected and disconnected at the same time. They want to insulate themselves from these pressures in the global economy. Um, uh, and they, they, they're happy to see America get a bloody nose, West get a bloody nose and be weakened. And they're happy to see you know, Putin get a bloody nose, too, because remember, there's a long festering border dispute with Russia going back to the 1960s when Russia took a bite out of, out of northern China. So. Um, I think he's very vulnerable there. But if I were Xi Jinping, I'd, I'd be paying, and if I were the Chinese in general, I'd be paying attention, Becky, to three things right now. Um, what you're seeing with Putin, I'm pretty sure, is what happens when you have a, a long-time leader, stayed in office too long, completely isolated. Um, uh, he can make some grotesque mistakes. Um, Deng Xiaoping understood one thing about China. China got into huge trouble, communist China, when uh, uh, because it had a leader for life named Mao Zedong. Um, and so he he instituted this idea of constant rotations. Well, Xi Jinping is is now we're trying to reverse that and become emperor for life, in effect, uh, himself. Um, if I were Chinese, I'd, I'd worry about that. You, they could have a Putin problem very soon. How much information does he get? Are people just telling him everything they, they want to know? Second, uh, I think she's got to look at the fact that the United States galvanized a global coalition that dropped the equivalent of an economic nuclear bomb on Russia. We dropped a, a nuclear economic bomb on Putin that has the ability to completely freeze up his economy in the next two months. And um, I think she has to take that into consideration as he contemplates, you know, Taiwan, et cetera. Secondly, what she, I think, did not understand at all is um, my, my Princess Diana rule. You know, Princess Diana once complained that there were three people in her marriage. Well, guess what, Mr. Xi? There are three people in your marriage right now. There's China, there's America in the West, and there's weaponized social media. What we saw in Russia now was first these government sanctions and then just a whole bunch of companies, individuals. Um, uh, amplifying those sanctions on their own, which you can do in a flat world. Um, a lot more people can play now. And I think what she all should pay attention to is that uh, news that the uh, predictions that the West was dead uh, may be premature. Um, the, the West is rallying here in defense of uh, democracy, uh, freedom, and, and to support freedom-loving nations. And uh, uh, if I were she, I'd be studying this situation very, very closely. It's not a slam dunk for China. Tom, I always thought the Soviet Union collapsed under its own weight because in this day and age, there's no such thing as what they were selling, what they were doing. And it, I don't see how in, in this day and age you can possibly think you're going to reconstitute it. 
because uh, just you're never gonna you're gonna have zero friends ever, forever. And I don't even know if China stays a friend. And and I wonder that wasn't the case in World War II, which wasn't that long ago. I mean, your parents, Tom, probably my my father was was at the Battle of the Bulge. So I thought things were were different. But I, I think nuclear arsenals throw everything, make everything impossible to, to calculate at that point because. That wasn't hanging over our head back during World War II, and it is now. And he, he has that capability, even with the world totally against him. I don't know, it's worrisome. Yeah, Joe, I mean, it's, it's really why I wrote what I wrote today. I, I, my mom was in the Navy in World War II, and, and um, uh, the nuclear weapon was actually an innovation that came out of World War II when, you know, uh, long-range bombers proved to be insufficient. And so I'm very afraid that um, uh, a cornered, uh, humiliated Putin, isolated within his own team and and and, and the country, uh, he could do anything. And um, I, I just not taking anything off the table. Tom, as always, uh, we appreciate your time and your thoughts this morning. And we'll continue to watch this closely, be in touch with you. Take care. Thanks, Becky. Thank you. Next on Squawk Pod, a look back at how far we've come since the dramatic end of the Cold War. McDonald's had a home in Moscow. Soviet President Gorbachev must be thinking, I deserve a break today. Well, now, thanks to his own reforms, he can walk out of the Kremlin and get that break at the Golden Arches. And yet this week, a step backward for the country. Two of my CNBC colleagues on their time in Mother Russia, CNBC reporter Steve Leisman. The opening of McDonald's in Moscow was very symbolic. It seems so naive at the time, but in a sense, it was a symbol of the possibilities of Russia integration with the West. And fellow reporter Diana Olick, who was an American student behind the Iron Curtain. And for the first time, they decided to allow 40 students. This was negotiated during the Reagan-Gorbachev summit in Washington in the fall. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. I'm producer Katie Kramer. Yesterday's news that McDonald's would be temporarily closing its 800-plus locations inside Russia in response to the country's invasion of neighboring Ukraine got us thinking and talking about the once-powerful symbol the fast-food giant represented in the twilight of the Cold War. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Ronald Reagan at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin in 1987. A classic 80s moment. The American president acting as the voice of the West, 
calling out the leaders of communism, demanding change, and change was both big, policy-wise, and more personal. So I learned something new about a CNBC colleague of mine. My name is Diana Olick. I cover real estate and climate for CNBC, and I was a student in Moscow about 35 years ago in my junior year in college. You were there for the whole year? No, I was there from January to June. Um, So it was one semester. And it was a really odd program. This was 1988. They only allowed American students to study at college programs at the Pushkin Institute. And the Pushkin Institute was only for Western foreign students. It was a very kind of segregated type of program. Now this, what I was on, I was actually, I can't believe I'm saying this. I was a student at the Moscow Institute of Steel and Alloys. I know nothing of metallurgy, I assure you, I know nothing about that, but the school had a very good Russian language program. And for the first time, they decided to allow 40 students. Uh, This was negotiated during the Reagan-Gorbachev summit in Washington in the fall. So we were housed in a dormitory, a regular Russian dormitory, and we went to a regular Russian institute. So I got to make friends, meet tons of Russian people. And they, of course, were the ones who dragged me to McDonald's. While the official McDonald's opened in 1990, the first real store, the one I went to was what we would now refer to as a pop-up. At the end of my program, was the Reagan-Gorbachev summit in Moscow. So they were looking for fixers, interns, anybody who would help them. So we stayed on. I went to work for CNN. The Moscow summit was the fourth in a series of bilateral meetings between the U.S. and the USSR on arms accords and the relationship between the two superpowers. We have been talking about an exchange of students that on a regular basis, some of your young people will come to our schools and our young people will come to your schools. And Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, also head of the Communist Party, he was about 57 at the time to Reagan's 77. Gorbachev was a well-known face on the news around the world for his leadership inside the USSR on several reformist planks, perestroika, or restructuring, and glasnost, the Russian for openness. But before things get too far out of hand, (laughs) we find ourselves standing like this. So they opened up this strange McDonald's pop-up, which may have been partly for the summit to show, but the lines were just endless. Because I'll tell you this, Russians were insatiable for anything American. At that time, 1988, you were at the height of Glasnost. You hadn't yet seen the Berlin Wall come down, but we were just, there were 15 of us at the School of Steel and Alloys, and we were like rock stars. We actually were asked to do a fashion show in the auditorium for the entire institute where we would explain what's yuppie style, what's punk style, what's American style. And I'll tell you, when I left at the end of the program, I left all my clothes there. In January 1990, just weeks into a new decade, and shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall, an opening in Moscow made news. Soviet President Gorbachev must be thinking what billions of other people have thought in the past. I deserve a break today. Well, now, thanks to his own reforms, he can walk out of the Kremlin and get that break at the Golden Arches, McDonald's in Moscow. Today, the door is open. NBC's Peter Kent tonight on the Soviet Union's McDonald's Revolution. 
The grand opening hype was as foreign to Moscow as the hamburger. CNBC's senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. Hey. Hi, how are you? I'm okay, what's going on? Worked inside Russia in the 1990s after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. He wrote for the Moscow Times and the Wall Street Journal. This was like the event that really kicked off the 90s and, and kicked off a whole new chapter for the country. The opening of McDonald's in Moscow was very symbolic. It was not just a story in Russia, it was actually an international story, which was, you know, how far would all of this go in terms of letting the Westerners in? Um, and it, it seems so naive at the time, but in a sense, it was a symbol of the possibilities of of Russia, of, of integration with the West. Well, if they could, if you could buy a Big Mac in Moscow, well, you could almost do anything. Anything was possible. More than 90% of joint ventures in the Soviet Union failed. McDonald's had to bring a lot more than fries to the USSR. I mean, this was a country that basically had a tradition of 70 years of no customer service at all. Could they provide customer service? Could it, could a, would, would a person who sold you the, the Big Mac actually smile and say thank you when they took your money? That was just not something that was kind of done. I went into a Russian restaurant once and, and I, I was, my Russian was pretty bad. It never really got very good, but it was pretty bad. And um, I was struggling through the Russian menu and guy walks and the, the waiter walks up to me. He goes, don't, don't worry about the, the, the menu here. He goes, we have chicken, we have meat, and we have palmieni. And he said, and, and, and palmieni is a Russian uh, kind of ravioli kind of thing with meat in the middle or whatever in the middle. And he said, we're out of meat and the chicken's not very good. So... <laughs> So I said, I'll have the palmieri. But while the chain can claim the food is Russian-grown, the equipment and leadership is all from the West. Food factory outside of Moscow, which has a level of quality control and sanitation the Soviets are notorious for lacking. They couldn't rely on, on any transportation network. They basically had to create one themselves. They couldn't rely on a food network. They had to make a special deal with a bakery. Everything they did there to kind of create what McDonald's is to you and me, which is this ability to go, you know, anywhere in the country and get the same thing. That was a huge thing to overcome. What was it like as a consumer to go into the McDonald's in Moscow? How did it feel to sit down and order was, a Big Mac? Pretty much the same. You know, I think there were some things that tasted a little different. I couldn't really remember. But what was funny for me, you know, all those stories I said about, you know, you, it was really hit or miss when you went to go eat out in, in Russia in those days. So for me, it was a a really important backup, you know, for anything else. Well, I could always go to McDonald's. It was, uh, you know, a little piece of home in a place that was that was very foreign in a lot of different ways. And I remember being online at that McDonald's and trying to explain, well, you know, you would never wait this long in America for McDonald's. You'd probably use the drive-through. And it wasn't that my language was wrong. It was that they just couldn't get the concept of driving through, getting food and driving on and eating the food in your car. That was just. It's not no. that there were no words between. No, there was just no. It wasn't there were no words. There were no concepts. Breaking news. Uh, we'll show you shares of McDonald's restaurants in Russia temporarily closed by McDonald's. The company just saying that. 
Yesterday, in a letter citing the needless human suffering unfolding in Ukraine, McDonald's CEO wrote to franchise owners and employees that the chain would be temporarily suspending business in all its stores in Russia. It will continue to pay 62,000 Russian employees. You talked about the symbolism in, in, in 1990 of, of the first time the Golden Arches uh, were in basically in Red Square. What's the symbolism of this moment? What I suspect from what I'm reading is it will confirm for those who are against this war in Russia uh, that Russia's paying a price and it will be the symbolism of the West leaving. But I, I guess I'm afraid that for those who support the war, um, it will be the symbolism of the West um, trying to punish Russia for no reason. So I wouldn't think it would cut just one way. Um, I wouldn't think that Russians would say, oh, they're closing down McDonald's. We are wrong. I think it could be we're closing. They're, they're closing down McDonald's, those dirty, rotten Americans, you know, that are trying to hurt us. And they wanted information and they wanted culture and and they were just also some of the nicest, friendliest, most giving, uh, wonderful people. You know, they were young people and they were now they're my age, you know, so they're in their 50s. Um, and what's so hard for me to fathom when I look at all of this is that are these people really thinking that the West is against them because they just loved everything about us? And I just can't imagine that they think we're all the enemies somehow. It's just hard to compute. What was your McDonald's order? Oh, you know, like, like here in the States, I go through waves. Sometimes it's a Big Mac all the time. Sometimes it's the, it's the quarter pounder with cheese all the time. And, uh, I remember the Russians loved the French fries, Kartoffel. They, they, they just, they, they love the French fries more than anything. And I think over time, you got to check me on this. They eventually added some Russian items. I think they might've even, even added Palmieri to the, uh, to, to the uh, uh, menu there. But yeah, I, you know, I, I, it was just a piece of home there. Steve, thank you so much. And thanks for sharing some of your memories with us. I really appreciate it. And that is Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. And let us know what you think about today or any of our podcasts. You can find us on Twitter at Squawk CNBC or rate or review Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts. You can do it right on your phone. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. All three are in tomorrow. Tune in to CNBC at 6 Eastern or say it with me, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great day. And we'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 